Okay. I'll take advantage of it. Good afternoon, uh, everybody, and uh, welcome to this afternoon's seminar. Um, BuzzFeed is one of the digital brands we spend a lot of time talking about and speculating about, so uh, I'm absolutely delighted that Jim Watson has agreed to come and talk to us this afternoon. Jim is the political editor for BuzzFeed UK. Uh, he's been with BuzzFeed UK from almost uh, the beginning in, in the UK. He's just saying he was recruited about six months in and was the first news hire here. <coughs> but he's uh, played an absolutely key part in the growth of um, BuzzFeed UK and particularly its, its development as a, uh, a, a news operation. Uh, and I'm delighted we're going to get a little peek under the bonnet to uh, hear about the BuzzFeed way. So, Jim. Thank you very much. Um, it's, a, it's an absolute delight to come back here. I, uh, I turned up to many seminars while I was there. I can't say I stayed awake through many of them while I was studying at Oxford, but I'll do my best today to keep you entertained and give you an idea of what BuzzFeed is up to and where we've come from and where we're going. Um, so just to give you a really quick idea of what I'm going to talk through today, I've got a presentation which I'm going to give you, and that is going to be very quickly on how BuzzFeed works as an organisation, where it's come from, and especially on some of the technical things we do behind the scenes. And then, hopefully during some questions, we can actually eke out a bit more in terms of what that means in terms of news, how we run it internally, and things like that, which aren't as well put down on a few PowerPoint slides. But this is the idea that will give you a quick overview of what is going on at BuzzFeed, where we've come from, and where we're going. And then we can talk about uh, what we're actually doing in the UK at the moment with news. So as Richard said, uh, my name's Jim Watson. I'm the political editor at the moment. Uh, I have been there since late 2013 when there was eight of us in a small rented office downstairs in London uh, in, a, in sort of a shared office space and when we were getting a fair few readers and we were seen as this quirky little upstart and now we are in the quite pleasant position of being hyped up sometimes to the point where we wish it was a, a bit like the old days and no one was really expecting very much of us. <laughs> So things have changed quite a lot in the last two and a half years. Things will also change quite a lot in the next two and a half years going forward for us. So we're trying to work out what we're going to do to avoid being another one of those places that people used to talk about. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'll really quickly start. And actually, this is the most important thing. Who is aware of BuzzFeed? Oh, that's great. OK, that's a good start. And who actually reads it? OK, it's good. It's OK. And who actually likes it? Right, right, that's our base. That's, that's good, okay. Um, if there's one thing in the questions, it's more, if there's one thing I get out of this, it's to hear really what you think we're doing wrong, or what you think we could improve, or what you'd like to see more of, or what you think isn't up to scratch with BuzzFeed. Uh, it challenges us and makes us think a bit more, and then I actually get an idea of what people perceive us to be like. So really quickly, uh, I'm going to start with a list because you know, it's BuzzFeed and that's what people expect. Um, in the very early days, BuzzFeed was founded by a guy called Jonah Peretti, who's the only true genius in this story. He is an MIT grad who founded the Huffington Post in 2005. Uh, he then was basically given this toy to play around by some venture capitalists called BuzzFeed, which was his own pet project, which was an attempt to work out what actually goes viral online and what people are into. And remember, I kind of feel like I did a lot of growing up on the internet, literally that was sort of formative years stuff, sitting there online. And before Twitter, before Facebook, links would get go viral through email or you'd hear of something and you'd maybe Google it in the early days. Uh, and that was how people were coming to the site. And it was frankly enjoyable trash. 
It was, uh, it was tech news, it was a little bit of political news, it was TV stuff, it was also links and aggregation in the typical sense. Today, uh, a typical front page that I screen grabbed is completely brilliantly chaotic. You've got a report from uh, refugees on the border, you've got a football quiz, you've got uh, exclusive reporting there from people providing food on the Macedonian border, and then you've got some quotes from a US TV series. It's all over the place in the same way that a newspaper always has been. You've got the light and the shade, you've got the entertainment, you've got the features, you've got the sport, you've got the news. Uh, we also have videos, which are a much bigger part, but I'll come back to it. And with that in mind, just before I go into the basic formats, the most important thing at the moment is that BuzzFeed isn't really just the website. BuzzFeed is, and I hate this because it sounds like rubbish marketing speak, but I assure you as someone who works there, it's the case. What we are is a lot of people are employed to work out what goes viral on the internet, in our respective fields, whether that's video, news, entertainment, sport, and then to put it in whichever format that is, whether that is a web page, a video, Snapchat, Instagram, directly onto Facebook, and then make it go viral. So it's less about BuzzFeed as a news website aping a newspaper and more about a lot of people who work for a company called BuzzFeed trying to get their content to reach the maximum number of people. That said, here's some of the very basic formats that BuzzFeed perfected in the early days. So we've got straightforward news pieces, because text is a very good way of getting something across. You can literally have a straight news story put in a block of text. People can read it on their phones, people can read it in any format they like, and they can quite quickly pick up what's going on. You can do lists, because lists are great. Uh, lists are wonderful. Everyone likes to just have the same idea hammered home again and again. It makes a point very well. This isn't a news piece, but this is uh, you know, an example of something that can go incredibly viral just by putting a few funny pictures in a row. And that, in some ways, is no different from the can't you believe it section at the back of the Daily Mail or the, the funny pictures sent in by readers that magazines have run for decades. Uh, You've then got the ability to put a list into any format, and you can always just wonder whether people are going to actually read things and see what they're going to make of it. Uh, so there's that. And then you can do, this was one, it's actually, uh, that's almost exactly, it's over two years ago now, um, but we took, uh, there was a, a very boring story about the floods. No one could get a different angle on it. Uh, because it's just floods, it's water, politicians are standing there doing nothing. So rather than try and report on the fact that David Cameron has today pledged extra funding to try and make the, the water recede when there's nothing he can do, we just took a load of pictures and summed up the mood by uh, putting people like Ed Miliband standing there looking a bit useless. Uh, and then you can also play on the news, and this is a favourite I always like to bring up because a guy called Tom Phillips who works for us, who brilliantly pastiched and took down a lot of the uh, outlets in the UK by essentially covering how would a zombie apocalypse be covered by The Guardian, while well, The Guardian would run a live blog and talk about the style issues that were going on there. Um, the Mail Online would, bl would blame it on the immigrants um, because, well, you know, that's what they do. Uh, uh, the BBC would try and get balanced by having someone on from the other side. <laughs> uh, 
and there's there's and and then BuzzFeed would obviously just do a load of lists and uh, aggregate a lot of funny tweets. So you know that's an example of sort of where we mess around and essentially you could write a critical media column saying you know the mail's gone to pieces but in some way this and this is a critical thing this is brilliant for going viral online humor doesn't have to be overt doesn't have to be in your face but anything whether it's straight news or anything which has something that makes people smirk or go no way or have some sort of reaction like that is the key to going viral and I'll come back to that later on. That said, we've also got foreign reporting, so we were one of the first people on the scene of the Malaysian Airlines crash. We've got, I think, 19 uh, countries where we've got full-time journalists reporting now. <coughs> and, you know, a lot of what they do is basically straight reporting. It's in the style of foreign dispatches, more in the American tradition than in the sort of British foreign reporter tradition of we'll send someone over there and if they can read the local papers and send us the funniest stories back home under their byline then we'll be happy with it. It's much more about can we actually break stories that people care about. Uh, and then big investigations. So this one, hopefully some of you have heard this one, which was uh, a massive year-long investigation we did into tennis match fixing, which we ended up publishing in conjunction with the BBC. <laughs> Um, to make, get maximum impact, which just before the Melbourne Open caused a right stink and revealed that uh, Novak Djokovic, as a result of it, although not implicated in this, uh, ended up saying he had been offered bribes to throw matches early in his career. So, uh, and as I said before we started, I'm going to talk a lot more about the news side of it, maybe in the Q&A, but I want to give you an idea of the things that make us just that tiny bit different as an organization, because I think basically we aren't doing anything that clever. We're hiring proper journalists, we're doing things traditionally. A lot of the things that give us an edge are because of our status as a tech company rather than a traditional publisher and the mentality that comes with that. So at the top of every page are statistics. Everywhere you go on the site, if you're a reporter, if you're a journalist, if you're logged in, you're going to see a load of statistics. Uh, and that is not to say we are driven <coughs> by clicks or traffic. I'll nuance that later on. We do want as many readers as possible, but we are not there merely to try and trick people into reading our stuff and then leave them disappointed, because that way we won't get a long-term audience and we'll ultimately disappoint people. What this shows, for instance, is that this piece got 50,000 views, which is it's okay, it's all right. What that also tells me is that something like, for every person that read it from our homepage, so, you know, they're just browsing buzzfeed.com, and on their phone and they see this headline and they click on it. For every person that did that, another one and a half people came from being recommended the link on Twitter and Facebook. And that's the key metric that we look for. So we judge it as you are doing your job well if people are sharing your stuff. That's the number one thing in the whole company. If I write a political story, I had a little scoop the other day that Ian Duncan Smith on some very minor boring thing to do with the EU referendum was going to defy David Cameron. It's a good story in the world of political journalism. I'm not claiming it's going to be leading the six o'clock news, but, you know, it was worth it. It did not shockingly set the world alight if, uh, as if we published exclusive pictures of Kim Kardashian. However, on that metric, the people who mattered were clearly sharing it round and reading it, so we considered it a job well done. Within its tiny little field, it did very well. Um, 
And so those, everyone at the whole company can see those stats on anyone's piece. So everyone has a constant idea of what's doing well and what's not doing well. And then that feeds into their way of thinking and doing things. And that's another example. So that's the piece. So the blue traffic, if everyone can understand that as a traffic graph going up, um, you know, so that's, uh, blue traffic is sort of um, hits from the homepage. It's people seeing the headline and then clicking through and they might just jump off. The red stuff is coming from people who've seen a link elsewhere off the site and been told, you know, you should read this. So that to our mind is the easy basic metric for telling whether people are actually enjoying it and reacting to it. Uh, I'll just skip that. I mean, that just shows you sort of the level of it. Another thing we do is we run a lot of headlines, uh, a lot of different headlines and a lot of different pictures. So the picture you put in the thumbnail on an article can be one of the most important things you do on your piece. We don't view this as being bad for journalism. We don't view it as negative that all our journalists are taught to care a lot about headlines and to care a lot about how they publish it and how it looks on the internet because which journalist doesn't want to get their stuff read by as many people as possible. So for instance, you know, um, second headline there uh, we could run and the top one we could run and you'll probably find a quite dramatic difference in terms of how many people click on which headline because we all do it. There's some words that set us all off. There's some framings that do. Sub-editors on national newspapers have known this for years. We're just trying to do the online equivalent. The advantage we've got is we've got a very good system behind the scenes, which, um, so this was a, a random post. I, when we hired a Scottish political reporter, so he got to know the site, I made him do this. His first post, a very basic traditional BuzzFeed list of 21 problems Scottish people face when they move to London. Um, <laughs> And just to give you an idea of the difference it can make, so uh, same headline, same piece, exactly the same content. One had a picture of Alex Salmon looking sad. The other pic one had a picture of an iron brew taxi. Um, twice as many people clicked the one with an iron brew taxi as the one with Salmon looking sad. I mean, it, it, it took us two seconds to add the extra test and we doubled the readers. Uh, it's just a basic thing to think about. Um, and the other one is we also see how far down the page people read, which is also useful. You know, you don't want to make a news story too long just so you can sort of make yourself look clever and win awards. And this is the final point in terms of what, uh, what I want to make in terms of behind the scenes. Is if you look at that list, this is from a typical day. Uh, I think we're actually a bit further up the list, but these are the top publishers on Facebook. And can anyone see the one thing that really sticks out with BuzzFeed compared to some of the others in that list? Very few articles. Yeah, that's the thing. There's very few articles. So that, we're, that shows we were publishing about 500 pieces a day um, and getting almost as much interaction, i.e. probably as many readers as NBC who were publishing 3,000 a day. So that basically sums us up a lot. We're focusing on story selection, not doing stories just because we feel they should be done, uh, not doing running stories just because you feel you ought to do them. Uh, I personally would look at the BBC website if I wanted a digest of what I needed to know that day. I'm not going to look at BuzzFeed. Why would I then have our limited resources put into trying to do exactly the same job that's being done very well already on 10 different sites? 
Um, so here's a, a little look at the BuzzFeed news element. And I, I want to emphasize a lot of the stuff I'm showing you is general across the whole BuzzFeed enterprise. And then we'll focus in on news. So that's the basic rules. It's not clever. It's not really that innovative, funny, different, or exclusive does well. If it's something you haven't seen before, if it's something that has a site's edge to it, and if it's something that is presented in a way that you wouldn't normally see it presented and makes you think, then you'll probably do all right. It's not that original, but it's actually, in a nice way, quite pleasingly back to basics. Um, so here's an example. Uh, from when David Cameron uh, sort of took in a, 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 said he'd taken a lot of Syrian refugees. There's 1,500 people had written up that story, all with almost the same headline. It was leading the bulletins all day. There is, to some extent, limited benefit from us adding a 1,600th take to that. Um, so what we did instead was two of our reporters found some MPs who said that they'd take one of the refugees in themselves. It's not the biggest story in the world, but it's quite fun. It, it moves on a bit, it's a bit different, and also, as a result, it got far more readers than if we'd just done another take on the story that you had already seen somewhere else. Um, also, interviews. I mean, traditional pieces, they can fall into the exclusive category. This was a, a really quite heavy, from memory, from editing it, about 3,000 word piece uh, written straight through. We sent a photographer and a journalist up to the north of Scotland, which isn't necessarily the cheapest thing to do. It, I can't even claim it did as much traffic as if we just had the same amount of resources put into making a load of lists of you know, 21 things everyone who turns up to a journalism lecture knows to be true. But what it does is it gets us influence, it gets us time with Salmond, it gets us follow-ups in almost every paper, including the ones who would have previously sent on things like this, but have now given up and just aggregate other people's work. And more than anything, it just makes us look more professional as a site. And it does actually bring in readers. They're not the biggest in number, but in terms of who they are, you'd be amazed how many important columnists, how many MPs tweeted about it. It does actually have impact, and it does bring in more people. And here's one secret, is that we all like to read trash stuff. We don't like to admit it. We all like to read about celebrities. We all like to read about sport. We also, there's a man shaking his head at the back. Well, you know, I'll come to you, I'll come to you at the end and see, see what you think. Um, but often we like to read it on sites that also deal with heavy stuff. It's the same reason The Sun has a very big politics team. Everyone likes the whole package to sort of feel that it can represent them and sort of bring in uh, something that really, really sort of does the whole package, even if they're just looking at the other stuff. And we do see an amazing amount of people sort of come in to look at some Kardashian pictures and then end up reading something on government policy. Um, I mean, it amazes me, and I'm the one who writes it. Uh, uh, Humour, I mean, obviously, picture stories. I mean, that could be a, a UKIP candidate getting stranded on the sand is something that could run uh, in any newspaper in any decade for a good hundred years. Uh, and, but that's the main thing. I think... The main lesson we do is go niche or go big. So try and do a really in-depth investigation or a really worthy piece that, on something that you really care about on the basis that if you really care about, thanks to the internet, it will probably reach a bigger audience than something medium that you don't really care about. Maybe I'll rephrase that. So if we wrote that generic story of the day, the one that's top of the Radio 4 bulletins, the ones that's top of the Guardian, the BBC website, it would probably 
not really get much steam. It wouldn't really add anything to anyone's knowledge because they'd already seen it elsewhere. And because we're not a print publication, we don't need to fill the page and have it on the front page. Much better in that case is to do something small that no one's heard about, which perversely will probably then do more readers and more traffic. So you can justify it on both original journalism grounds and on in terms of boosting your audience. Uh, equally, this is an example of taking a very grim running story and going completely in on it where we just did absolutely everything we knew on this story, brought it all together, put in calls, and that, in terms of actual readers, also did big traffic, even though it's the story of the day, because we had little details in a package presented differently. It wasn't you know, outrage at that, there was no imposing of emotions, it was just, here's a cold factual look at this grim story, and here's everything you need to know, and it was one of those where people do just want to report it and want to know a bit more about it. Um, and as I say, coming back to it, I did end up writing that running story of the day, uh, and I wrote it like that, and shock horror, no one was really interested in it. They were interested in the other two pieces that we did on it, which were either the MPs taking in the Syrian refugees, or they were interested in everything you need to know. They weren't interested in, the politician says something that I've already heard him say 20 times before. Um, making it shareable, we've, uh, we've talked about that before, talking about headlines. Um, they are you know, quite in your face, they're quite straightforward, but they are not written in terms of puns or in terms of... Um, I always say they're written a bit like how if you were telling your friend about the story in a short tweet, if you were sending it to them on Facebook, if you were sending it to them on Twitter, how would you sum it up? You know, you, th this, is, this is the picture that has made people change their minds about X. This is the thing that David Cameron said. You know, just get straight to the point. Don't go around it. Don't use uh, jargon that people don't understand. Talk in a normal language and shock horror. People respond well to that. Um, so this, was, this is one of my favorites. Is, uh, and this comes back to some of those tests I was talking about earlier. There's some words which have an insanely odd react, uh, effect on people. So, very similar headlines, and if you look at the number of people who chose to click through, massive difference from definitely, completely, and all the rest. And one of my favourite, and this, this comes from the guys who really work hard on getting readers at all costs who do our features, is that putting the word actually in a headline can up traffic by about a third. <laughs> um, which is astonishing. I mean, it's absolutely bizarre. But think about it. You're looking through your Facebook feed, and um, let's say there is a post about uh, where, where in Oxford should you live, a BuzzFeed quiz. And you go, oh, where not? Yeah, I'm not quite interested in that. I want to know a bit. Maybe it says I should live in Jericho, maybe out in Summertown. Um, and if you see one that says, where in Oxford should you actually live? And it sort of, for some reason, speaks to the heart a bit more. And people, and it does have that massive effect. So, you know, um, uh, 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 on top of all the news basics, there is always this sort of constant learning within the company about little things that make a big difference in terms of actually keeping on top of where our readers are and what they're interested in. Uh, 
And this is one of my favourite articles that my editor-in-chief wrote because he wound up half the internet by boldly declaring uh, that why BuzzFeed doesn't do clickbait. Uh, which is great because we have this reputation for being lowest common denominator, absolute trash, doing anything possible. They're just, you know, all over my Facebook feed and they're annoying me. Um, what this actually means is that you basically can't trick people online. Uh, you could a few years ago, you could write these pictures, you'll never believe these pictures of an elderly couple and what happened to them next. And Facebook briefly rewarded people clicking on things and so Facebook then fed back into its algorithm that people like it because they're clicking on it and that created a weird feedback loop where the more you trick people, the more Facebook rewarded it, which meant that the more people saw it. That, unfortunately for many publishers, has gone. So basically, it comes back to that thing. If we wrote a headline with, you'll never believe what Ian Duncan Smith's done now with evil benefit sanctions, it would obviously do better than leaked documents suggest Ian Duncan Smith might be changing his mind on this. But actually, <coughs> the, the latter in the long run would lead us to tricking fewer readers and leave us with more happy readers who'll keep coming back to us. Uh, and yeah, and considering how to promote it, I mean, this is a really big <coughs> thing. Um, emphasis on promoting your own story and getting it out there and getting the word out on Twitter and Facebook and on all sorts of channels. Let's face it, people are not going to come to websites directly much in the future. It's just going to go into decline very soon. So they are reading you through their Facebook feeds, they are reading you through their Twitter feeds, they're reading you probably less through their Twitter feeds and more through their Instagram feeds. Um, and so, again, we, all our journalists are taught how to promote it. We have full-time social teams, but it's not something that's just bolted on at the end. It's, is this the right framing for it? Is this the right, right approach to the story? And the approach to the story is informed by how it will then play out in social media which I will happily defend if anyone feels that that is compromising journalism um, and talk you through why that's not the case. And yeah, and in terms of framings, um, so there was a story last summer about in the Labour Party in the UK, people were signing up as £3 members and you could put John Smith down and pay £3. So I tried this and took a colleague's cat paid three pounds and got it signed up and wonderfully it managed to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, so just for a brief moment we got that and it, you know we could have done you know a, a Sunstar like shock as left-wing extremists get inside the system kind of thing but it feels a bit odd and for a lot of our readers they wouldn't really understand why um, left-wing people voting within the Labour Party was a problem because they don't remember the 1980s and in insurgencies so they but Proving the point with a sort of stupid tabloid trick like this actually got a lot of attention and was quite fun at the same time. Um, uh, at the same time, we can also do silly things like having political interviews in emojis uh, where we asked the leader of Scottish Labour how they felt Scottish Labour was going to do and they responded with a load of clouds with a hopeful sun at the end. Uh, and we also sort of just tell the story narratively by just having uh, pictures of things happening. You know, you can just play around with the format and there's no restrictions on how we do it. 
Quizzes always do well on stories of the day, so even if it's on something bizarre, remember again, clever people, no matter how much they tell you, also like silly things and like to be entertained. And there is nothing more delicious than taking a serious topic and writing a silly thing aimed at the same serious people. Uh, so I did a which select committee chairman are you? And uh, with this, obviously it was taking the piss out of both ourselves and out of the system, uh, but it did quite well because people appreciate that. Um, and this is the bit which will feed into discussing in terms of how we work as a newsroom. The number one thing as a company we're doing is, and it's a terrible buzzword and I do apologise for that, is going native um, in terms of platforms. And platforms are things like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. They're where people are actually reading your stuff. Um, we wish it wasn't the case, we wish people were still uh, waking up and choosing to go to the website directly, we'd then have a lot easier life in terms of advertising revenue, in terms of making sure we knew who our reader was. They're not. We're just following the audience. It's inevitable that they've gone away. They're not coming back. Websites are not in the healthiest place, I'd say, across the board. Um, even today, just down the road at the Site Business School, John Whittingdale, the Culture Secretary, has promised newspapers an emergency summit to deal with the rise of ad blockers. I don't know what the British government thinks it can do about people blocking ads on websites. Um, I'd like to see what they come up with, but it is a sign that newspaper advertising is going. Everyone hoped that display advertising on uh, websites would replace it. It's increasingly looking like ad blocker might be the death of that. <coughs> so we're now trying to work out what next. And for us, the main thing is following that audience who aren't wanting to look at websites, aren't wanting to look at ads, and putting stuff directly in front of them. So for instance, this, uh, we've actually, since I took the screen grab, added about 200,000 followers to our, our BuzzFeed News Instagram account. We see probably more interaction on there than we do on our Twitter account. Um, uh, actually, I'll just talk a little bit more about that. Snapchat also, less for news content, more for general entertainment content is now probably as big as anything we could ever imagine. It's got tens and tens of millions of people a month looking at our stuff on there. Um, teenagers, uh, and I'm increasingly looking aghast as we hire reporters who tell us they can get Snapchat sto stories from Snapchat. Um, I, I, I don't, frankly, even I don't understand what the hell's going on there, but I'm doing my best to keep up with them. Um, and Twitter is, to our mind, increasingly not that important. Um, Twitter is... <sighs> Twitter is an odd one. Twitter is where the elite hang out. Twitter is where the people who take your stories see them and then choose to put them on the 10 o'clock news hangout. They're the place where the person obsessed with a topic who will then go and put it on Facebook and their friends who aren't obsessed with the news will see it. Twitter is a place that matters a lot for news and almost not at all for anything else. And in terms of news, its main reason it matters is because other journalists read it and the people, and a handful of people who put stuff onto other platforms read it. It's increasingly not a place to actually get an audience and certainly not a place to take the temperature of the nation. Uh, investing in original reporting. Um, this is the thing we've done a lot. I mean, Borsi was recently the FT's Middle East correspondent is now our correspondent, which is 
a sentence I would never have expected to say when I joined BuzzFeed two and a half years ago. I mean, it is preposterous. We're hiring top world-class reporters and sending them into war zones. We're uh, hiring Heidi Blake, who runs our investigations team in the UK, who um, started out at the, well, she started out at the, Sunday, at the Telegraph and then ran the Sunday Times insight team with Jonathan Calvert while they broke the enormous FIFA story, which has resulted in the uh, fall of Seth Blatter. She's sitting in the office working on stories all the time. Um, and it's not cheap. We're putting a lot of money into this. We've got Janine Gibson, who has uh, set up Guardian US uh, and then did the Snowden story. And then James Ball, who was uh, with her, and Stuart Miller, who were all on the same team, have all come over and are now helping to run the UK news desk. And the emphasis is basically on we want to break through into being a top-grade news outlet within the next few years. Um, it's, again, it's a bizarre thing to say when I remember as uh, when, you know, the team when I joined could have sat around half of this table. Uh, we are now hiring a proper news desk with all reporters who have actually got proper reporting skills. That's what we're interested in. And the only thing we're interested in now is scoops. We're less interested in aggregation. We're less interested in viral stories that do well for the hell of it. We just want to have impact and to have you hearing on more channels. We want you on the turn on the Today programme on Radio 4 in the morning and hear there's a strange story in BuzzFeed today or uh, to open up the Times and to see a quote that they've lifted from us attributed to BuzzFeed. Uh, often they like to lift the quotes and not attribute them to BuzzFeed, but I can understand why some people would be embarrassed by that still. Um, but basically, putting the money in and trying to do it properly. And also, we've launched foreign editions. Um, so, we are all around the world, and this is great, because I have no idea what any of this says. If anyone speaks German, it would be great to know. Um, but uh, this is a sample uh, homepage from Germany. And what's great about that is it means that whenever we have a story that's, say a story is going on about reporting of something odd going on in Germany and it's in the British newspapers. We've now got teams around the world that we can phone up and go, hey, can you do us a favour? Can you actually check this one out for us? And so it's not only a foreign reporter base, it's actually someone embedded over there who we totally get. And our big investment at the moment is in BuzzFeed Japan, um, which we've launched in, which is our first ever joint venture, which we've launched in conjunction with Yahoo. And um, I, sadly, I'm reduced to only reading it through Google Translate, which if anyone who uses Google Translate regularly knows, results in the most bizarre, unwieldy uh, lines, which combined with the subject matter makes it an absolutely brilliant read. And then, yeah, I guess this is the strange thing with us, is that when I joined, I was busy doing stories which were all about the strange, quirky things in British politics, because really no one was covering that and doing stories like that. And the really odd change is that um, everyone does that now. It's really changed in two and a half years. Sort of the idea of uh, not writing in the funny bit at the end of your serious story, but doing the, the, the silly bit straight at the top, or doing the funny bit, or doing the gossipy bit straight at the top as a headline on its own, wasn't really the case a couple of years ago. And now everyone is. So we're really running in the other direction and trying to do little scoops and trying to do proper reporting and trying to do things frankly, the old-fashioned way, by building a news desk with proper reporters who are paid well and given expenses accounts and told to get out there and get reporting. So, with that in mind, I'm just going to look... I was just thinking, I've just been over in the US um, doing a bit 
of uh, reporting over there on the presidential election, which is uh, a mad dystopia. Um, and I thought a few of the stories that our US team have filed, our US politics team, which show the sort of way that a team at BuzzFeed can get massive readers, massive number of readers, massive reach, big impact and a big readership and justify the entire investment in the news operation. So the last few days we've had stories like uh, this, which was a classic opposition research job. We hired, we, Andrew, who's been with us for four years, we had the idea before the election. I don't know how many of you know how a, a political campaign is normally fought, but you'd go along and you'll uh, have one team for, in the UK, I don't know, easy as. Democrats will sit there and dig up as much dirt on the Republicans as possible, and the Republicans will sit there and dig up as much dirt on the Democrats as possible, and then when the time comes, they'll hand it out to a friendly news organisation who'll run it. So we decided to do our own opposition research team, and so we got Andrew, and he hired three people straight out of university. He's about 25, uh, despite the terrifying byline picture that makes him about 10 years old. Uh, he's very nice, actually, in case this actually gets published online. Um, but, uh, and they just literally do everything that an opposition research team would do. They go back through old radio shows, they go back through old press clippings that aren't available online, and they just dig. And people love this stuff because you end up with audio, you end up... So they just listened to about 10 hours of the Howard Stern show with Donald Trump interview and just wrote down what he said. It wasn't available online, it wasn't Googleable, it wasn't searchable. We put it out there, 700,000 people wanted to hear these clips. I mean, that is not an insignificant audience for anyone. And even though I'm not claiming, you know, that's basic reporting, it's just digging away. There's an audience for it. People wanted to hear this stuff. And it might have maybe come out if the Democrats had stumbled across it, but I, knowing Andrew, I reckon he's more persistent than even the political operatives that are hired to do this. Um, here's a, a piece by McKay, who's one of the best writers we've got. He, you know, he's not necessarily the guy who brings in uh, a punchy scoop. He's the guy who does the, I've talked to 20 people behind the scenes in the campaign and I know what's going on. <coughs> so, you know, this was a 2,000 word analysis of the death of a Supreme Court justice. It's not what you'd expect on BuzzFeed. A couple of hundred thousand people read it because it was the best piece on that. Um, Andrew, again, while going through those Howard Stern shows, found that Donald Trump, who'd always maintained he was against the Iraq war, he found a clip of audio going, yeah, I guess I'm in favour of invading it. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's really basic stuff. No one had been able to find it. No one had been able to do it. It was kind of there if you'd just gone through the archives and he bothered. And it's because he wasn't being clogged up writing the story of the day. He wasn't being clogged up doing that. If he only published that, this, and, you know, if that was the only thing he published all week, we'd be happy with that because, it, you know, within an hour, Trump was being asked about it on CNN. And again, a lot of people read it. And this is my favourite, again, just to finish on, the editor-in-chief, a total mischief-making, uh, reporting on the media, political story. Our uh, editor-in-chief got wind that the New York Times had an off-the-record chat with Donald Trump where he basically implied that the immigration lines he was taking, uh, despite being a vile racist, he is also just slightly putting it on as an act and might tone down his position in time for the actual vote. And, you know... A secret tape with Donald Trump, which we know exists, but we know they also won't release. And it's absolutely delicious because, you know, 700,000 people wanted to read about it, had a big impact. And again, within a couple of hours, Trump was on CNN being asked, you know, why won't you release the tape, Donald? Where is it? What are you hiding? All of this comes back to basically simple reporting. And at the end of it, <laughs> I just want to emphasize 
we're making this up in many respects as we go along. We, have, we believe we've got a better idea than most people, but we are still very much making this up as we go along. But it's a constant feedback loop. If we see something working, we keep doing it. If we see it stop working, we don't do it. And on the news side, ultimately, the thing we measure is not just views, it's in terms of whether it's having an impact time and time again. So that's a real rush through. That's a real rush through. But hopefully that gives you a really quick idea of how BuzzFeed started as a experimental tiny lab. We've taken that from about six people to worldwide best part of 1,500 now. Um, we've got proper journalists who came in. We built an audience first, and then we took the ways that we built the audience and then built a news team on top of that. And then the really big thing is good journalism and proper stories and interesting things that make you have a guttural reaction, whether that makes you laugh, makes you happy, makes you be disgusted, are the thing that get readers, because that's what makes people share the story, which then brings in the readers. And with that, I'd love everyone to pick apart what I've just told you for the last 30 minutes. Jim, thank you very much indeed.